Our Father and our God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for an amazing time in your word. Thank you for the journey through Ephesians so far. Thank you for everything we've learned. Thank you as we bring um, our studies in this book to a close today. I pray that yet again, we're able to learn and apply your word to our lives. Help us to see you through your word clearly and to see ourselves in you. There's no confusion. There's clarity in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So today we're wrapping up the book of Ephesians. Um <laughs> We've been here for four weeks, and today is the fifth week, right? And we've averaged like one hour, 30 minutes for each session. So on the average, we've spent about six hours. Today, we're about to do like the seventh hour <laughs> in the book of Ephesians alone. Um, it wasn't planned, but I believe every minute was necessary. And it's going to form a strong foundation for many of the other books we'll be going into. So next week, for instance, we're going into the book of Colossians and we're probably going to breeze through the entire book because a lot of it is very similar to Ephesians and there's no surprise. Paul wrote it at the same time. And you see a lot of similarities in those books. And let me not start Colossians. <laughs> we'll get to that next week. Today, we're in Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. And just by just by way of recap, um, if you've been following through, which I believe you have, um, you've seen the flow of Paul's thoughts from Ephesians 1 down to where we are today. If you remember in Ephesians 1, we started off with Paul letting his readers, meaning the church, know what God's plan or what God has done for them in Christ. And then he ends that chapter by praying that they may know, that they may know the hope, they may know the power work in them, they may know, they may know um, um, that they may have wisdom and revelation by the Spirit of God because he just listed out so much. And all he's praying is that they may grow in that knowledge. He goes into chapter two to start to talk about how they once identified in darkness but now they identify in Christ. And if you remember that chapter, you see words like you were buried together, you were raised together, you were made to sit together. So there's an idea of identification. And then he starts to emphasize how this is the grace of God, that in the ages to come, God will point to the church as an expression of his kindness. So if you want to say, how do we know that God is a good God? How do we know that God is a kind God? How do we know that God truly is a loving God? He will just point to the church and say, look at what I did for the church. So we have become God's expression of kindness, God's expression of grace to the entire universe, both spiritual and otherwise, right? And then we started to go into the second part of Ephesians 2, and he starts to talk about this idea of unity, that when it comes to the church that God has created in Christ, remember in Ephesians 1, he foreknew a people, sons and daughters in Christ. And he says, these people are now one. So it's no longer Jews or Gentiles. It's not a people who were once alienated from the covenants of God. No, 
in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have become one, have become building blocks of God's temple where he now dwells by the Spirit, right? In Ephesians 3, he went on that theme and he talked about the revelation of the mystery, how he has been appointed by God as a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And that through his ministry, everyone would be able to see that the gospel or the, the plan of God from the creation of the world was for both Jews and Gentiles. And he ends that chapter by praying, right? Praying that the experiential revelation of everything he has been talking about will be actualized in their lives. So he prays that Christ would dwell in their heart by faith. He prays that they may grow to know the love of God, which passeth all understanding. And then he goes into chapter four and he starts by saying, therefore, and he's basically saying everything I've talked about so far, all God has done for you in Christ, the unity of the church in Christ, how the church is the expression of God or the, the manifest display of God's kindness in today's world and for all ages to come. All of that, how should it inform our day-to-day -day living as a community of believers in the now? And that's what he starts to really narrow down in Ephesians 4. And he starts by talking about, he reminds them of our unity. He says, we've been called to one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one spirit. He now says, however, each one of us has received grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So he's basically saying that, yes, we are now one by virtue of our identification in Christ, but within our unity, there is a diversity of expression in the will of God. And he starts to explain how the plan of God for the body is each person playing their role to ensure that the body stays strong. And I talked about how the unity of the body is seen when we, or is, is most seen when we start to acknowledge and to receive from our diversities. The unity of the body is most seen when we start to acknowledge and receive from our diversities. When I start to realize that there's something that you can add to the body that I need. There is something I can add to the body that the body needs. And when every one of us plays our part, when every one of us acknowledges the necessity of each other and receives from each other, then you would see a body knitted together by that which every joint supplies, Ephesians 4.16. And before we can get to that point, he emphasizes five gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, whose sole purpose in the church is to equip everyone to get to that point where they are able to contribute in the manner to which God has equipped them for. I believe that makes sense. I just said a long runoff of sentences, but I'm sure that that makes a lot of sense because we spent literally an entire day on just that part of Ephesians. And then he starts to talk about um, how in more practical areas now that we've been called to a new life. So he talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. He talks about how you're no more um, you, don't, you shouldn't walk the way you once walked as a Gentile. He now starts to talk about putting off and putting on. And, that, and I, I, I talked about that last week, how, how these are instructions. First of all, it's possible because you are now a new creature 
he could not have given this instruction to you if you were still in your sins because you literally have no power within you to resist the influences of the flesh but now that in a sense you have put on Christ he can instruct you to practically in your day-to-day living put on Christ and he starts to talk about the practical applications he talks about anger wrath forgiveness kindness he talks about even things like lying stealing he talks about our relationship or the church's relationship with the world outside and how we should realize that we are surrounded by darkness and what is our responsibility by the word and by our conduct to expose what do i mean what did expose mean last week to prove to be wrong to convict of wrong right so through our if if we as a body if we as a church could put on Christ the world around us would acknowledge whether or not they believe whether or not they join is another matter but at least it would be a bold statement of of light in the face of darkness similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 a, um, a city set upon a hill men men who see your good works and glorify your father in heaven then we started to talk about as we started to round off Ephesians 5 where he started to say don't be drunk with wine but be filled and before then i talked about how hold mention a certain conduct a certain character and say but rather right but rather take away filthiness take away foolish talking but rather the giving of thanks have no fellowship with darkness but rather expose them don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit and we talked about how the practical expression of being filled how would we know you are filled we don't just see um like fuel fuel tank and it's like oh your fuel is at half or three quarter or quarter tank no we can tell the person is filled by the actions that follow first of all it should be evident in utterance in utterance you would speak by inspiration whether that's in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs whether that's in prophecy whether that's even in wholesome words words of encouragement words of exhortation will be able to tell that you are a person filled with the spirit of god it says giving thanks a person who is filled would be thankful in the face of adversity in the face of even negative circumstances you will be thankful even in good times you also will be of course it's easy to be thankful in good times but it doesn't just stop there it's not just in what you say he now goes on to say in verse 21 Ephesians 5:21 submitting to one another in the fear of god to a person filled with the spirit of god or a community that is filled with the spirit of god it won't just be in their utterance it won't just be when they gather and they are speaking and they are singing that's one and that's amazing but even in their conduct you would find that they respect each other they submit to one another and it starts to have practical implications in their interpersonal relationships so he starts to talk about marriage for instance wives and husbands and remember this is still the expression of a community filled with the spirit of god so don't let whenever you hear oh i'm filled with don't just don't just think um at this point in time i'm flowing in all the gifts with ease yes that is a sign but there's also the practical reality that we will tell in your interpersonal relationships how respectful do you submit are you humble enough to submit to one another in the fear of god so last week we looked at the first practical expression of that of what um submitting to one another looks like we looked at that in marriage 
And we talked about how the idea of the, of the marital union was to figure or to, to prefigure Jesus and the church. The same way Jesus gave all. In Philippians 1, he says, um, in, in Philippians 2, rather, that though he, he, was, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, he humbled himself, took upon the form of a servant, made himself of no reputation, took upon the death of a cross. So he gave himself for the church. And Paul is saying, in the same way, husbands, love and give yourselves for your wives. And then he flips it also and says, wives also, the same way the church submits to the Lordship of Christ, wives submit to your husband. So that is one one expression and even in that we see christ as the goal today in ephesians 6 we're going to look at two more expressions that paul lists as spirit-filled relationships and what you're going to notice is that each of them would also prefigure or would also reveal christ that is the goal of every christian relationship or rather every relationship you have as a christian is tied, and I said that last week, it's somehow tied to what you have seen in Christ. The same way all the five gifts, they are expressions of Christ. The same way in our relationships, every single relationship we find ourselves in is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to reflect Christ, or it simply reveals how much we have learned of, of Christ, how much we have truly submitted to the influence of Christ through us or how filled of the spirits we are. Amen. So that's by way of summary. <laughs> I've summarized Ephesians 1 to 5. Let's start Ephesians 6 verse 1. And I'm reading from the NKJV, right? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Again, without dwelling too much too much on this, because we've talked about this already, he's talking about a community filled with spirit. Children in that community will obey their parents as long as it is in accordance with the will of God. So it's not saying if your dad tells you, oh, go and steal, we don't have bread at home. Like, ah, Ephesians 6 verse 1 tells me to, 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 to obey my parents. No. It says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6 2. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. He now goes on to say what the promise is, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So many people have read this and for some reason assume that Paul is telling them that or reminding them to live under the law. That is not what he's doing. Even from just a purely grammatical standpoint, that is not what he's doing. He said, Honor your father and mother. He quotes that commandment and he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. The point is very simple. He's pretty much saying that to show how important this is, under the law, this was the first commandment with a promise. Does that make sense? So he's not saying that they are somehow once again under the the Ten Commandments or anything like that. We've already looked at Galatians, where the whole point of Galatians was to show that a person who is filled with the Spirit or a person who lives under the influence of the Spirit will keep the law. It says you would love, and against all of this, there is no law. So he's not trying to somehow reinstate one of the commands or any of that. He's pretty much saying, under the Old Covenant, there was... The first commandment that had a promise attached to it was honor for your parents. 
That is to show how important it is. How much more now in the spirit? That's what he's getting at. So it says, honor your father and mother. And by the way, honor is material. In case you don't know, a lot of times people think honor is just saying, sir, or prostrating in the morning, a car or sir, and then you prostrate. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. <laughs> but anyways, um, that is not, that is a sense in which honor is. Of course, honor means respect, but more, more than that, honor was also referring to providing for your parents. And that's why Jesus will speak in Matthew and say that if you, um, that because instead of you to honor your father and mo- your mother, you go and tell them that, oh, you dedicated that money as korban or as gifts for the Lord and that you are violating a, 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 a command at the expense of another. So they all knew honor meant providing for your parents. And I think even... Um, even just from a from a responsible standpoint today, because these are again instructions which it is in our nature, but because of the environment, because of culture, and maybe because we're not conscious enough, we may sometimes miss this. As a responsible believer, take out like as you start to get more financially stable, it, it doesn't cost anything to, to give your parents something. Like just dedicate some part of your salary every month and say, Oh, thank you, mom and dad. Like they might not need the money just say go and use it to enjoy yourself that is honor that is honor amen it says honor your father and your mother which is the first commandment the promise what is the promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth it now says in ephesians and i mean that's common sense in one sense in the which in the fact in which a person who honors their parents even today it would it would um it would lead to a life of of you'll be you'll be sensible a person who is rebellious who doesn't care what his parents think would often be reckless and might even die prematurely so there's a sense in which it's common sense <laughs> a good child many times will probably live a good life it doesn't always happen but that's kind of the logic a stubborn rebellious child <laughs> would enter one chance and join band gang and end up in life in prison we've read all those books right mother's choice or is it i can't remember the one that the child went abroad and became a useless child. I can't remember, but we read it in secondary school or primary school. <laughs> Anyways, um, it says, um, yeah, so it's a Nigerian book. I remember the child was holding like suitcase and there was a plane or something. Mother's, I think it's mother's choice. I can't remember. But anyways, um, <laughs> that's the idea. And it says, you fathers. So again, it, it switches the audience. It switches the audience. So he talked to wives in the previous chapter, then talked to husbands. Now he's talking to children, but it doesn't stop at the children. He's talking to the parents. So fathers in quote, because they would most likely be the ones to enforce discipline in the house, but it's generally parents. Do not provoke your children to wrath. I remember when I started to read my Bible, this was one of my favorite Bible verses because I'm like, "Ah, fathers, don't stress my life. Mommy, don't stress me. Don't provoke me, (laughs) right? Because it says here in Ephesians 6 verse 4, don't provoke your children to wrath. Meaning don't don't somehow make demands of them that will be unbearable. Don't be unreasonable. They are also human beings, even though they are your children. It says, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So again, what do you see in Ephesians 6 verse 1? Obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4, bring up your children in the Lord. So at the end of the day, 
those actions are based off of our reflection of Christ. So if Jesus is truly my Lord, in his Lordship, I submit to my parents. As parents, as, as parents also, if Jesus is truly my Lord, in his Lordship, I bring up my children likewise. So all these relationships are somehow tied to the revelation of Jesus as Lord. Does that make sense? So it's not just giving random instructions. No, these are Christian instructions because they are ultimately informed by your revelation of Jesus as Lord. Amen. It goes on in verse 5. It says, born servants, and you see the same thing. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart, as what? As to Christ. So it's the same logic. It's the same logic. If truly Jesus is your master, if truly Jesus is your Lord, in, sub in submitting to Christ, you would learn to submit to your masters. It says, not with eye service, not as men pleasers. And yes, even though this was referring to like the whole slave uh, master relationship in those days, today it can apply to employee-employer relation. If you're an employee, an employee, don't be reading your Bible during work hours. That's not what you're paid for. Right? That's not what you're paid for. Don't do I say that, oh, when your boss is coming, you quickly open, change tab. It is an instruction in Christ. Obey or be a good servant. Be a good employee. It says not with eye service, not, not to please man. It says, but as born servants of Christ. You see that. He says in verse 5, born servants, obey your masters as to Christ. In verse 6, it says, as born servants of Christ. So because I'm a born servant of Christ, I can be a good born servant to my human master. Because I live to serve Christ, I can be a good employee. That's the idea. So it has practical implications. No Christian should be a bad employee. It doesn't make sense. You are, you, are, you, you are showing that you don't truly understand the practical application of Jesus being the Lord over your life. And you'll be like, ah, how far now? Is, is it not just for, that is the point. That when a community of believers can take these instructions to heart, the world would know that of a truth, these people have been changed. Of a truth, these people live by a different standard. It says, not with eye service, not as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God, from the heart. So it is the will of God to be a good servant in this case, or to be a good employee, to be a good child, to be a good um, parent, to be a good sibling. It is the will of God. So don't, don't, don't be that person where you're going to church, you're an amazing person in your church community, you volunteer, you are active, you are, I mean, everyone can tell you love the Lord. But outside your Christian community, outside Sundays and midweek services, your, your siblings are scared of you. Nobody can just walk into your room because they don't know what can come. After that, anything can happen. They cannot take your food by accident because they will not hear the end of it. Ah, it's a problem. Or at work, your employees are like, ah, we're just barely keeping this person because left would have probably fired the person already. No, it shouldn't be the case. A Christian, someone who recognizes the Lordship of Christ in his life, 
would also see that lordship expressed in his day-to-day relationships. You would be a good child that submits to the lordship of your parents in 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 Christ. That's as far as is in accordance with the lordship of Christ. If you are a parent, you would bring up your children in the will of God. So bad parenting is a problem. You shouldn't. If you are an employee, if you work, you are being paid to produce work. You would make sure that you do quality work. You don't do eye service. You're not a man pleaser. No, you serve well. Why? Because you know that even in that is an opportunity to reflect my submission to Christ. It is worship. And we'll see that in Romans 12 when we get there. It is actually worship. What is worship? Worship is simply the response. The Any response to what God has done for you in Christ is worship. It's the response of the regenerate heart in light of all that God has done. Because that's what he says in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, my message of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or reasonable worship. I love that word reasonable. In the Greek, it's the word logikos. I'm doing small um, on Romans 12, but it's necessary. It's the word logikos. It's where we get the word logical, what makes sense. So if you truly, and that's why he started by saying, I therefore, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Everything he's talked about in Romans 1 to Romans 11. How we're all in sin, God saved us, goes on to Romans 8, you are a new creature, you'll be glorified. All of that, he says, I therefore beseech you by the mercies of God that you present. Because that's the reasonable thing to do. A believer who truly understands all that God has done, his reasonable response will be to respond in worship. How would that be seen? It would be seen in how you treat your siblings, how you treat your parents, how you relate with your, your employees or your employers, how you relate with your wife or your husband. That is how it would be seen. In Matthew, Jesus was given an analogy when he talked about the last day. He would say, um, welcome. You, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in the prison, you visited me. When I needed, when I was naked, you clothed me. And they're like, ah, when did we do this? He says, if you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So there's even that sense in which, God, I mean, it says that if you can't love people that you see, how would you love a God who you cannot see? There is a strong correlation to how we treat people and our revelation of God. That's, that's the theme consistent through scripture. There's a strong relationship between our physical relationships and our relationship with God. If truly you are growing in your walk with God, we will tell in your physical relationships. If truly you are starting to learn more about the love of God, the forgiveness of God, you will be a more forgiving person. If truly you are learning about the, the Lordship of Christ, we will see you submitting to people in the fear of God, submitting to your parents, submitting to your boss, in quotes, right? Where you, you, you do good work, you are a good child or you are a good spouse, we would see it. So don't be that person that would form Oh, Jesus, I love you. Reckless, oh, the overwhelming, oh, there's no shadow and all of that. Or I will not be silent. I will always worship you. And you can sing and you can cry. And it's amazing and you are blessed. And then as soon as you get home, because they forgot to buy food for you, immediately or that night, you start to spark for everyone in the house. That's a very big contradiction. Very big contradiction. You don't 
you you better be silent because you are not worshiping God at that point. Amen. Let's go on. Um, where am I? <laughs> I went off a huge tangent, but it it was necessary. Um, yes, verse eight. It says, "Going knowing that whatever good anyone does, he would receive the same from the Lord." whether he is a slave or free. So this is another thing to bear in mind. So not only are we responding to what we've seen in Christ, but we are also doing it knowing that there is a reward. That there is a reward. He said that spark has still not be said. <laughs> so there's also there's, so first of all there's a sense in which we can't do any better after all we've received. And secondly, there is a reward. So why won't you do the right thing? Because even if there wasn't a reward, we still owe everyone the gift of love. It's something we owe them. After everything Jesus has done, we owe forgiveness. You can't remember the analogy of the guy that was forgiving so much and couldn't forgive little. It doesn't make sense. So you you literally have no right to not forgive when someone offends you. Whether or not they ask is not you don't have a right to not forgive them anymore because you have been forgiven far greater but even beyond that there is now a reward so what is your excuse is what is getting at why won't you why won't you he now goes on in verse 9 just like he has done all the time he has he had talked to wives talked to husbands he talked to children he talked to um parents he talked to the servants and now he talks to the master it is do the same things to them do the same things to them giving up threatening knowing that your master also so do you see that so the master knows that he has a master as well and because he submits to the mastership if that's a word or the lordship of Christ he is able to be a good master it is knowing that you have a master also in heaven and there is no partiality with him meaning that your master in heaven he sees both you and your servants the same way there is no partiality you would receive whatever you do you will be rewarded or judged accordingly so you know that you have a master in heaven so you too you are a slave in a sense so treat treat your servants the same way you know that your master has treated you or the, the same way you expect your in fact your master will do more than you expect because he is god so do you see that sense and he that's how he concludes he starts to round up the chapter but the idea is basically our personal relationships should reflect a certain revelation of god i should be able to tell that hmm, this person truly knows the gospel why he finds it or she finds it easy to forgive This person truly submits to the lordship of Christ. Why? Because they are good at what they do in their office. They are not like the rest of people that will just do barely enough to get by or just do enough not to get fired or eye service when they are not looking they are chilling as soon as the master comes they they scramble no they don't do that. They live like they truly have a master who sees all. That way we can tell that number 1 you are a person full of the spirit and number 2 you are a person that has submitted to the lordship of Christ 
And the goal of Paul, never forget, is that, yes, it starts from a personal application, but the goal is to see an entire community of believers, a church who lives like this, where everyone um, realizes that every relationship they have is somehow tied to their relationship with God. Imagine that for a second. <clears throat> where people are not lying to one another. Nobody is, is bad-mouthing. Nobody is filthy talking. People are only encouraging, loving one another and the Lord. Where people submit to one another. Where people love one another. That is, that is the idea of heaven, right? That is God. That's what Jesus said is the kingdom of God. It's not here. It's not there. It's in you. The influence of God through us as a community. That's what he was getting at in Ephesians 2, where he says, all of us are being built a dwelling place for the spirit of God. That unity, as it, it is utopia, actually. It is utopia because I don't know if we're, we, we might have similar, maybe we might have similarities today, but this is the goal of a Christian community. It would be so radical that the people of the world would be like, how... How are these people doing what they are doing? And the answer will be what? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. That's why Jesus would emphasize in John 17, by this they may know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this they will know that God sent me, if you, if you are one. So our relationship as a community, whether within our community or with people outside the community, it is a great, or it is, it is, a direct expression of how well we have understood our relationship with God. So it's a paradox for a Christian community to, in quotes, be so united in worship and in, in, let's say, charismatic sessions. But then after all that is done, there's backbiting, there's division. They, they, they truly haven't learned what it means. To, to follow Christ as they should. They've not learned, they are not a spirit-filled community. That's what Paul is getting at. Amen. It's so important. It's so important. All right, so let's start to round up. He now starts, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're about to start a new section, and if you've not heard any teaching on believer's authority before, this will bless you, I promise you. He says, put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. I reject. <laughs> Anyways, um, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wiles, what does that mean? I don't think any one of us uses that word today. Wiles, I'll be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. What does that mean? It's the word methodia in the Greek. And that should already start to give you an idea of what it's talking about. The word methodia, method, right? It's talking about trickery, to trick someone or to, 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 to lie in wait to deceive. So it's setting plan to, to deceive or to trick someone. We actually saw this word in Ephesians 4, but I didn't emphasize it then. Let me, let me, um, let me get, get it. Yes. Um, sorry, give me a second. Let me, I think Ephesians 4, 14. Ephesians 4, yeah, hold on. Let me open it up. 
uh, yes, Ephesians 4, 14, that we no more be children <coughs> tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to what? To deceive. That word deceive is the same word whilst in the devil. So to lie away, <coughs> to lie in wait, to do something, to deceive, that is the word methodia in the Greek. Amen. All right. No, no, no. I don't I don't think it's the word devices. Give me a second. Let me get that. That's Ephesians 4, right? Uh, let me open that up. Um, what verse is that? <clears throat> All right. Okay. I'm not. We'll get to that. But. Anyway, <clears throat> oh, you mean we're not ignorant of his devices? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not, it's not the same word. It's not the same word. It's not the same word. Um, anyways, so when it says put on the whole, the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the trickery or the, the deceitful plans of the devil. So already you are starting to see that what the devil wants to do is not slap you in the face or punch you, and all of that, he's there to what? To deceive you. And it's important you take note of that word because that means what we are going to do to stand against him, if his attack is to deceive, what would our defense be? Let me not get ahead of myself. Let's go on to, to Ephesians, but bear in mind, that is what the devil wants to do. His plan is to lie in wait, to deceive, to trick and to deceive, right? So, Think about that. If that is what <laughs> so we deceive back, if that is his plan, how do we resist? How do we defend? Let's read in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Again, people have read this word wrestle, and because of that, they think we are the devil in a sparring match and his basketballs. And <laughs> Anyways, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I love how Paul really explained what we were up against. And like I said in Ephesians 1, where are these people located? In heavenly places. So that's to show you that heavenly places does not mean heaven, in quotes, where we assume oh God and the angel. No, heavenly places basically just means in the spirit realm. Right? So, there's an idea in which Paul wants you to know, and I love how C.S. Lewis put this. I, I can't remember word for word, but he, he talked about how there are usually two extremes, that we must not develop an, um, a heart where we don't realize that we are actually engaged in spiritual warfare. That yes, there is a demonic realm and there is a devil who is actively trying to bring down the church of God. In, and by church, you, me, all of us right? But he also said there's an idea in which we shouldn't have an unhealthy attraction to them. And that could be expressed where everything you somehow think it is a demon or um, you, you, you become so fearful or so paranoid of the existence of negative or demonic spiritual beings. Those are extremes that you, um, either extremes are terrible for the believer. So yes, there is a sense in which we recognize their existence. 
that there is a demonic realm in which there there's, there's an entire spiritual host of wickedness that is trying to bring down the church that is trying to make sure that everything Paul just talked about doesn't happen that we continue in division we continue um <clears throat> not shining as the light we're supposed to we continue not growing to know more about the plans of god we continue and you see children being rebellious fathers and mothers who have been terrible parents um wives who are unsubmissive husbands who don't learn to love and all of that that is the plan of the devil to make sure that the church doesn't act like the church he can't stop us from being the church because our identity is not tied to what we do it's tied to what jesus has done but he can stop us from acting like the church that we are supposed to act like and in doing that remember we've talked about it in ephesians 5 it would hinder our effectiveness in the world around us he said reposted redeeming the time because the days are evil if the church doesn't buy back the time the time will be lost to the things of the world so people will continue going on in sin paying no attention to the church why because for one reason or the other the devil has succeeded in stopping us from acting like we truly ought to act a spirit filled community whose lives have been changed by Christ does that make sense every time i run off for a bit i'd be like okay let me call myself back does that make sense thumbs up if it does ah i'm not seeing any thumbs up should i go over it again okay okay again i said um remember first of all paul is talking to a church what he just said now was put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to what i'm basically saying first of all is that every time you read epistles yes there is a personal <clears throat> application in which i should do what is written but the author's goal is that everyone who reads this does what is written and so there would be a collective advantage so it's more than just one person being strong in the lord his goal is for an entire community of believers to be strong in the lord and in the power of the might of the lord so what you should always ask yourself when you read is what does the writer envision when this entire community does what is written so if i could do this if the, if my brother and my sister in christ if we as a community can do what is written what would be the outcome <clears throat> and so by by reverse when it says that we wrestle against this spiritual forces who try to deceive us what i said is remember it's still a community so also the goal of the devil is to attack the community of believers because that is the, that is the plan of god the community it's not just you nothing in christianity caters for just your personal existence no you were saved into a body So I'm saying the same way the goal if the goal of God the will of God is to get the church to be spirit filled what does spirit filled mean to be given to the influence of his spirit as a community and we would see that in the way we relate to one another and to the outside world and the implications of that would be that the world would recognize that we have indeed been changed by Christ that is the goal that is the goal remember Ephesians 1 when I talked about how He says that the fullness of all things that filled all in all he gave him to be the head over all things to the church so even from Ephesians 1 the goal was that the church gives expression to all that God has done for Christ on our behalf 
The church gives expression to the authority of Christ. The church gives expression to the kindness of God. The church gives expression to the love and the lordship of Christ in the spirit. So the goal of the devil and his hosts, all these people, these principalities and powers and darkness and rulers and spiritual hosts, their goal is to stop the church from being the church. What I said was they can't take away your salvation because all of that is tied to what Jesus has done, not you. But what they can do is stop our effectiveness in the sense in which we don't bear in mind all God has done. We don't walk in love towards one another. We don't put off the old man. We don't live in our interpersonal relationships as we ought. If the devil can even succeed at doing that, he has succeeded in causing the church to fail to represent Christ to the world as it should. If that happens, the effectiveness of God's plan on the earth will be affected. So that's the goal. Does that make sense? So, for instance, from, um, from Ephesians 1, if the church somehow loses sight of the fact that we are the representation or we are to give expression to the authority of Christ, in today's world, it would look as though Jesus has no authority. That is not true. But because the way the world is meant to know is through the church, if the church fails to do it, then we would not know or the world would not know that there is authority in Jesus. So the goal of Ephesians is to bring the church as a whole to a collective point of responsibility where we see ourselves as literally the vehicles of God's purposes and plans in Christ. That is the summary of Ephesians. That the church sees themselves as the vehicles of God's purposes and plans even today. Even today. That's why Ephesians is one of the, the it's, I can't remember the theological words, but it's so strong on Ecclesiastes. I'm not going to pronounce it, but basically the study of the church, the, the concept of the church, that is the goal of Ephesians, to bring that the church as a whole to that point where we realize who we are and what we are supposed to do in the world today. That is the goal of Ephesians. Amen. So when it says we don't wrestle against these guys, the goal is to make, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood rather, but against spirit, um, spiritual wickedness, principalities, powers, and all of this. The goal is to make the church aware that there is, oh yes, oh yes, the we, the brethren, it is intentional. It's not written to one person. The goal is that even as you start to see it, of course, the means through which it should be accomplished is when each person, first of all, takes personal responsibility but the vision is collective. If you, if you somehow read Ephesians for just yourself, you are missing the biggest point that Paul made when he was writing this book. The goal is for, to see a collective expression of the church. Let's go on. So he wants the church to be aware that there is spiritual wickedness that will try to hinder, will try to resist, will try to trick, would use methods, right, to deceive and trick the body. He now says in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day or in the days where you are tempted and all the things happen, having done all to stand. So what is this armor? 
What is this means through which we are able to stand against the devil? Is it Let me be respectful. <laughs> Let's go on. Verse 14. Stand therefore. Haven't guarded your waist with what? Truth. And if possible if you're using a physical bible or highlight highlight these words. Truth. Haven't put on what? Sisters gold armor. The belitanos. Um haven't put on the breastplate of what? Righteousness. Haven't shod your feet with the preparation of what? The gospel of peace. Above all, taking on what? The shield of faith. With which you are, I'm going to still go over all of this again, but I just want to read through and then we'll reflect on what those things are. Where am I? Okay. With which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of what? Salvation. And what? The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. praying always so what constitutes this armor just at first glance truth righteousness faith i think you're already seeing where i'm getting at salvation the word of god and prayer this is basically christian identity truth righteousness what god has done for you in christ right faith the means through which you actualize all that god has done salvation what you've received by virtue of faith <laughs> um the word of god by which you keep you you remind yourself for instance everything that paul has talked about prayer what paul is saying what is the armor of the christian christian identity basically day to day christian living so he's not trying to drop mad revs like ah um truth is is a breastplate righteousness no What he is simply saying and I'm going to go over it again I just wanted to emphasize this first of all what he is simply saying is that the way we resist the devil or what spiritual warfare is is a Christian standing fast in his identity in Christ a Christian who holds fast how do we stand how are we strong in the Lord by simply standing firm in who we are in Christ basically doing everything he has asked you to do so you talk about um um truth for instance remember i said what is the devil trying to do deceive trick how do you resist the deceive them the deception and the the tricks of the enemy by choosing to hold on to truth how do you resist the attacks of the enemy on your identity by choosing to hold on to salvation i have been saved i am righteous i know the truth jesus is the truth of god i, I take the word of god i pray that is how i stand firm that is spiritual warfare so if the goal of the of the devil is to stop the church from being the church how do we resist him by choosing to consciously hold fast to our identity in Christ. So he's not saying anything new. He's just saying finally stand firm in who you are. Stand firm in who you are. So in the word of God you see who you are. Stand firm in it by prayer, by holding fast to the identity of what God has made you. Hold fast to truth, hold fast to righteousness, hold fast to salvation. 
Be ready to proclaim the gospel at every opportunity. This is literally Christian living. So what is spiritual warfare? Is it engaging in three days prayer and fasting to break generational curses? No. Spiritual warfare is simply the believer choosing to hold fast to his identity in Christ through constancy in in prayer and in the word of God. I'll say it again. Spiritual warfare is the means through which the, the believer resists the deception of the enemy by choosing to hold fast to his identity in Christ through the word of God and through prayer. Does that make sense? Thumbs up, reactions. Does that make sense? I hope you can see this. It's 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 so important because we've been taught spiritual warfare and and all of this. And there's this idea in which it is something something more than what is necessary. No. For instance, look. Let's let's even let's go to First Peter five verse nine. First Peter five verse nine. First Peter five verse nine. What does it say? In fact, let's start from verse eight. It says, "Be sober." Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So again, you see the, the presentation of, we have a devil who is against us. What does he say in verse 9? Resist him steadfast in the faith. Usually, when you read um, like this, in the, in the way the Greek was translated into English, many times when you see two, two things like this linked by comma, it implies that the, what follows is, is, is directly tied to what was before it. So for instance, in Hebrews 12, where it says, laying aside every weight and, and, and sin which easily besets us, comma, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, he's pretty much saying you can do this first one by doing the second. So as we look to Jesus, we are able to lay aside every weight. It's the same thing here. When he says resist him, steadfast in the faith, as we we are able to resist the devil by being steadfast in the faith. So Peter is saying the same thing Paul is saying. The way we resist the devil is by simply standing our ground in our identity in Christ. It's nothing foreign. We resist the devil by being steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's the same way we say, building up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. So he's explaining how you do the first, comma, by doing the second. So we resist the devil, 1 Peter 5.9, by being steadfast in the faith. It's the same thing Paul is saying. We are able to stand in the Lord and in the power of his might. We are able to put on the whole armor of God. We are able to stand against the wiles of the devil. How? By being people who are constant in the word and in prayer, through which we are able to hold fast to truth, righteousness, faith. Does that make sense? It's 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 very intuitive right now. Amen. So he's not he's not giving any instruction he, he hasn't touched on before. He's simply telling them, you have an adversary who would stop you from being the church that God intended. How do we resist? Stand firm in who you are as, as, as the church. Stand firm in truth. Stand firm in truth. Stand firm in righteousness. Stand firm in, in, um, in faith. 
as a church, as a community, both individually and collectively, be ready to preach the gospel. It's jazzle, right? No, they lose God. Be ready to preach the gospel. Take on the helmet of salvation. Acknowledge the fact that you have been saved. You have been saved. So if the devil is trying to suggest things, you say, no, I have been saved. That's how you take on the armor. That's how you resist. If the devil is trying to condemn you, you say, no, I'm the righteousness of God. That is how, that is literally spiritual warfare. If the devil is trying to say, oh no, do this or don't, no, I have truth. Remember what first, um, first John 2 said, you have an anointing of the Holy One. I have no need to tell you, you know the truth. You receive the Holy Spirit. So you are able to stand firm against lies. That's literally what Paul is saying. If the devil is suggesting things contrary to the word of God, you say, no, I stand in truth. I have an anointing from the Holy One who teaches me. I know the truth about God. I know Jesus is indeed the revelation of the Father. I stand in truth. At any point where this is starting to, to you're starting to, to forget any of this, what do you do? You take up the word of God. You give yourself to prayer. You stand firm in your identity as a believer. That is spiritual warfare. That is spiritual warfare. Amen. Amen. So let's 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 go back. <laughs> let's go back. So it says, stand therefore. Okay, yes. Having your waist. In fact, let's. So for instance, some of some people may wonder, ah, where is Paul getting this analogy from? This whole waist is this, breastplate of righteousness is this. Go to Isaiah 59, verse 17. Remember, I told you that at the end of the day, everything the apostles did was simply teach the Old Testament. There is nothing, and I mean nothing. <laughs> there is no revelation of God in the New Testament that was not first mentioned in the Old. If Jesus is not the Messiah of the Old Testament, he's not Messiah at all. So even Jesus submitted to the inspiration of scriptures in the old. How much more the apostles? So remember in all of this, Ephesians didn't exist until now that they were reading it. I told you like the um, Tychicus will bring it and say, oh, letter from Paul. Everyone gather, gather, gather. And then the elder of the church will literally read it. Where is Paul getting it from? Isaiah 59 verse 17. Thank you, Ayo. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. <laughs> he put on garments of violence for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He goes on to talk about it. I'm, I'm not going to go into the exegesis of Isaiah 59, but pretty much that is what Paul is reflecting on. So even the whole armor of God, <laughs> don't be today. It's not, it's not a new concept in that sense. Amen. It's not a new concept. It is simply Paul's reflection. In fact, I think I would I would talk on this. I would actually talk on this. Go to Isaiah 59, verse 16. Let, no, in fact, let's start from verse 14. I'm going to just touch on it a bit. And honestly, the Old Testament is mind-blowing when you start to learn how to handle it properly. Look at verse 14. It says, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar. This is Isaiah. For truth... Do you see that? Truth is falling in the streets and equity cannot enter. He's lamenting about that. It says, and so truth fails. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey, meaning someone who chooses to be a good person. It says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
he saw that there was no man. We've heard this verse many times. And wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought about salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. So ultimately, this is pointing to God's decision to save humanity by his own ability. And before you read that, look at what was what I has talked about. Truth has fallen, right? There's no justice. It says um, he brought what? Salvation. He brought righteousness. So you see truth, you see salvation, you see righteousness. Elements that Paul listed in Ephesians 6. What does he now say in verse 17? For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head, the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Who is this? Who is he? This is God in bringing salvation for, for humanity. This is Jesus. <laughs> this is Jesus. Amen. So it says, according to this, he would repay three for his adversaries, recompense for his enemies, the coastland he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, the glory of the rising of the sun. He says, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer, verse 20, Isaiah 59, verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression says the Lord. So this is Jesus. This is literally Jesus coming to address the problem of evil in, in humanity. And Paul is reflecting on all of this, that the church is literally the expression of Christ. So because he can read this from Isaiah, he's saying, likewise, guard yourself with righteousness. Guard yourself with truth. Guard yourself with salvation. Be ready to proclaim what Jesus has done. In doing this, we are address we are standing against the devil and we are able to represent Christ to the world, which is what Isaiah 59 is talking about. Does that make sense? I didn't plan on actually doing this, but I, I just said, you know what? It's necessary. Let's let's look through it a bit. Does that make sense? So even the idea of the, the believer being <laughs> <laughs> even the idea of the believer standing firm against the wiles and the trickery of the devil is simply Paul's reflection on Isaiah's prophecy about Christ. It's not new. It's not new. Amen. Amen. It's maybe we'll do journey through the Old Testament one day, but that's that'll be maybe two years from now. The Old Testament is amazing. And it's important we, when we, when the, the, the beauty of starting with the epistles is that once you start to understand how the early church reflected on scripture, reflected on all of things God did in the Old Testament, and you then go to the Old Testament, it's no more that boring book. 40 weeks is an understatement because the epistles alone are probably going to take us about that time or more. But um, it's no more just a book of Isaiah is talking, Jeremiah is talking, Ezekiel is talking his own, Daniel will add his own, Micah will come and add his own. No, you start to see it as beautiful pictures of all that God was going to do in Christ. Amen. So Paul, in talking in Ephesians 6, is simply reflecting of Isaiah 59, and he's saying the same way 
God addressed evil in humanity. God addressed sin in bringing about salvation through Christ. Here is Jesus. Here is God's anointed one coming in righteousness, coming in truth, coming to confront evil in the world. It's the same way we as believers today, the devil still tries to attack, but just like our Messiah, we are able to stand firm by holding fast to righteousness, holding fast to truth, holding fast to salvation, taking that shield of faith, taking the word of God. It's still the same message that the whole point of believers' authority, or rather spiritual warfare, is in us taking our stand in Christ. As we have seen him do, we do likewise. As he has made us in him, we do likewise. Amen. I believe that's that's, that's simple enough. I, I hope it is. Amen. All right. Let's, let's start to, to, to wrap up the book of Ephesians. It says in verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, can you see why he would say all the saints? Because the goal is for all the saints to stand in the will of God. And it says, you pray always, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, meaning by the agency of the spirit. The same way he talked about being filled with the spirit, being given to the influence of the spirit, and it should show in submission in your words and all of that. It should also show in prayer. You allow the influence of the spirit to direct your prayers, to direct your prayers. So it's not less necessarily just tongues. If you if you read carefully, he's talking about prayer influenced by the agency of the Spirit. He says, being watchful. That word there literally agrupneo, right? Agrupneo. It means to keep awake, to not sleep. But the idea is to be alert. So you are not you are not caught unawares. The devil doesn't take you by surprise. You are always aware that the devil is trying to somehow stop the church from being all it should be. Whether it's in my life personally, the devil is trying to somehow deceive me. The devil is trying to somehow make sure that I'm not conscious of who I am in Christ. I'm not conscious of the fact that I am a new man. I'm not conscious of the fact that I should put off and put on. I am watchful. I choose to be watchful. So the, the influence of culture in my day doesn't blindside me to the point where I don't know who I am in Christ anymore. The influence of our day doesn't blindside us to the fact that the church has somehow merged with the world. No, it says be watchful. Be watchful, be alert. With all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says, and for me. So not only do we pray for each other as believers, we pray for our ministry gifts. It says what? That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth to boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. Of course, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, right? So one of, I'm not, so he's saying it is also a way in which we stand against the devil by praying so that we may stand firm in the will of God. By praying for our ministry gifts, that there is utterance, there is boldness to continually advance the gospel, to continually equip 
each and every one of us to do what we are meant to do. So he, he, in this paragraph, he is pretty much summarizing or bringing everything he has talked about to its culmination. I've told you who you are in Christ. I've told you how you should respond. Now I want you to know that there are spiritual forces at work that would try to stop everything I've said from happening. How do we respond? By standing firm in, in all we are, in who we are. By giving ourselves to prayer to ensure that we are not, we don't lose sight of what the devil is planning and we are always on guard, on guard rather. We're always able to stand by praying for our ministry gifts in Ephesians 4, that there will be utterance, they will be bold to do all that they are expected to do so that we will be who we are expected to be. It says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So this is how we stand. We hold fast all God has said. We hold fast everything we've received by virtue of what God has done in Christ. We supplement one another by keeping alert in the place of prayer, by praying for one another, by praying for ministry gifts. So wherever the plan of the devil may come, whether it's through false teachings, whether it's to discourage the church, whether it's to somehow um, cause us to compromise and to fit into the culture of our day, whether it's through the influence of men, the point is we can stand firm in Christ. If we somehow bear in mind who we are, we will be able to resist. If we can give ourselves to the word and to prayer, we'll be able to stand firm in our identity in Christ. Amen. Amen. In verse 21, he goes on to round up. It says, but that you may also know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, and faithful minister in the Lord will make all things known to you. I, I, I love those two phrases, beloved brother, faithful minister. See those descriptions. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are marked by love. Well, what binds us together is love. As ministers of the gospel, we are marked by faithfulness. As I'll say that again. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are marked by love. As ministers of the gospel, we are marked by faithfulness. How well can you keep the integrity of the message you've received? How well can you commit to the cause of God in the church? That is the mark of a faithful minister. It says he will make known all things to you, whom I have sent you for this very purpose that you may know our affairs. So Tychicus was the person who brought the letter to the Ephesian church. Paul was in, in chains or under house arrest at the time he wrote this. So, of course, someone needed to bring the letter. He says um, that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love the Lord in sincerity. Amen. Again, he highlights what's just like Galatians, peace, love, faith, and grace. He's not just throwing words. Let me which other good word? Holiness. Holiness be with you. Which other one? Hmm. Goodness. Let me write goodness. Goodness sounds nice. No, 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 no. There, there, remember he's, as in, he's not just opening thesaurus. Which, which words sound similar? No, no, no. There's an intention to everything he's saying. 
So when he says peace to the brethren, love with faith, he's literally describing our Christian experience. Don't forget, first of all, we have peace with God. And he has talked about if the fact that that is true, we'd have peace with one another. Love, the mark of unity in Ephesians 4, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. says grace be. What I say grace is? The influence of God upon the regenerate heart. Be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with sincerity. Amen. And with that, we have come to the end of Ephesians. <laughs> awesome. So, just to summarize a few things, and if you have any questions, start thinking about it. I'll open the floor for questions now. All Paul is doing is making the church see God's plan for it. He's like, church, this is God's plan for you, oh church. <laughs> right? And that's why Ephesians is regarded as one of the most important books of the New Testament even till today. Because first of all, it is not tied to a congregation. So the same way we can see in Galatians, they had a specific problem. We'll get to 1 Corinthians and we'll see they had series of problems that Paul had to write mini epistles <laughs> for each problem that they had. And we can learn from all of that because in a sense today, people still try to, be, to legalize the gospel. In a sense, people still don't love one another. People still form divisions. People still do all those things that the Corinthian church were doing. But Ephesians outtrumps, no, not outtrumps. Let me change that. Ephesians differentiates itself from them all in the sense that it is not addressing any particular problem. And the audience is so generic that if there is any community of believers from the point Jesus died till the time he returns, this book would apply to them perfectly because what Paul is doing in Ephesians, he's making known the plan of God for the church today and even in the age to come. So he first lets them know who they are. What has God done for the church? He goes on to talk about the unity that comes as a result. He goes on to then talk about um, the, 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 the mystery that this was always the intention. Then he goes on to say, this is how we respond. This is who, these are the people God has placed to ensure that we all get to that point. This is how we respond in our personal relationships, in our communities, in relationship to the world around us. And this is how we ensure that despite the plan of the enemy, we continue being that glorious church that God intends for all humanity. Amen. I believe that that wraps it up well. Um, so whenever you read Ephesians from now henceforth, or whenever you teach Ephesians, let all these things be in your mind. Reflect on them. A lot has been said in many of these sessions. We've literally had like over seven hours on just this book alone. And frankly, there was still more that could have been said if we decided to stretch out anything at all. But the point is to give you some form of roadmap that whenever you read, you know what to bear in mind. You know how to teach. You know how to, to apply it to your lives. You still need to spend time to meditate on this. How well do I fit into the church of God today? How well does my church fit into the Ephesian church's plan for the church of God? Where do I need to improve? Where does my church need to improve? These are things that Paul expects you to reflect on whenever you read this book. Amen.
Any questions? Any questions? Any questions? Oh, no questions. All right. <laughs> Speak now or forever hold. <laughs> Anyways, okay. In the absence of any questions, um, next week we'll be starting the book of Colossians. And it's a very, very similar book, which is why it will be very easy to read through. There's, there's, there are a few distinctions that Paul tries to emphasize in Colossians. He talks about the supremacy of Christ and a bunch of other things. We're going to look at that. Let me not get ahead of myself. But stay tuned for Colossians. There's a lot we're going to learn. All right? You're welcome, everyone. Let's, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for journey through Ephesians. Thank you for the revelation you made known to to Paul and the privilege we have thousands of years later to reflect on these writings. Thank you for clarity. Thank you for your plan for, for the church. Thank you for choosing a group of people in your son for all ages to represent your goodness, to give expression to your love and your kindness. And Lord, I just pray that as we go on from today, we're able to reflect on all we've learned. We're able to stand firm in your word, in the power of your might, to stand firm against the trickery and the deceit of the devil. We're able to stand and, and to be a community filled with your spirit, where we love one another, where we submit to one another in love. I pray even for the next, um, the next books to come, that we're able to grow and learn as we acknowledge who we are by virtue of all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.